Hello and welcome to the Harder Report. My name is Edward Hardy, and for today's interview, I'm joined by Wayne David, the Labour MP for Care Philly, the former leader of the European Parliamentary Labour Party, and he's also held numerous shadow ministerial roles covering the Middle East and North Africa, armed forces, defence procurement, and Europe, as well as serving in Gordon Brown's government as the Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Wales. Wayne David, thank you for joining me. Thank you. You served in the European Parliament, leading the European Parliamentary Labour Party. Despite Boris Johnson's claims that he got Brexit done, there are still so many unresolved issues in that area, namely the Northern Ireland Protocol. And we've seen that Liz Truss has said she will trigger Article 16 as the new Prime Minister. How would Labour resolve the Brexit situation? Because part of the criticism Labour came under during that whole process was not having a position on it. Well, I'm speaking personally, really, and relying on my uh, experience of, of many, many years. But I think the important thing is, in the position we find ourselves, that people sit down and talk. And... Uh, what I hear from the European Commission and my former colleagues in the European Parliament is that situations like this can only be resolved one way, and that is by people sit down, sitting down and working things out. And uh, what the government is, is keen to do is have maximum confrontation. Uh, it would seem for the, the most uh, crass political reasons. And I think that if we are genuinely concerned about having a constructive relationship in the future with the European Union and ensuring that the peace process in Northern Ireland is enshrined, that we sit down and work this thing out. Uh, let, let's be clear that um, Boris Johnson negotiated this, uh, uh, this, this protocol. Uh, we were told at the time of his negotiations that this was undoubtedly the way forward and he sold it on the, on the basis that it was the best that the government could get. And now having negotiated that and having it enshrined it in law, he now turns around and says it has to be reopened and renegotiated. So I think that the sensible thing to do is to set, sit down and, and work out what is the best thing to do in these difficult circumstances, which the government itself has created. As someone who had that experience within Europe as an MEP and within the European Parliament, what's the best relationship you think that we could potentially achieve here? Because obviously there's always going to be that element now of being disconnected from Europe and the European Union. That's just an inevitable consequence of Brexit. What's the best scenario that, that people can hope for here? I mean, I think it's important to, to emphasise to begin with that uh, Brexit has occurred and that we have to do our utmost to make sure that we accept that reality, but we ensure that we have a good, constructive, positive relationship with uh, the rest of the, uh, the continent of Europe. And I think that inevitably that requires a good economic relationship. Um, the mainland of Europe remains an important market for the United Kingdom, but won't change because of Brexit. I think that if we put our maximum effort in de developing new relations throughout the world, uh, well, I would welcome that. We, we should not kid ourselves, but that can somehow replace the importance of having a, a good economic relationship with the rest of Europe. That is the economic reality 
I think we can send about the prosperity of Britain and the well-being of its citizens, but relationship must be a positive one. But I think it's also important to recognize that uh, at a time when there is a war taking place on the continent of Europe, but we recognize that Britain's relationship you know, has to be close with our European partners in terms of foreign policy and defense. And I think that, that is absolutely vital. And uh, I think that what needs to happen in this area, certainly, is that the Labour Party needs to put down some clear markers how we intend to work closely with the main players uh, inside the European Union, not necessarily using the institutions of the, the European Union, but maybe developing intergovernmental relations, particularly with the French government and especially with the German government. And I think that, uh, you know, we've seen Keir Starmer, for example, visiting uh, Berlin, having a constructive uh, engagement with uh, Chancellor Schultz. That needs to be built upon, and that is absolutely vital. Of course, the special relationship with the United States is there, and that will um, constantly be reinforced. But that's not enough. We have to have a good relationship with our European partners when it comes to defence policy, and when it comes to foreign policy as well. We have to be honest and realistic. Britain is not going to become a world power again. We are a medium-sized power, which is respected, despite Boris Johnson's best attempts to undermine that respect. And we need to have positive relationships with people and use our expertise and advice in developing common strategies to meet the the, the, the threats, the very real threats that we as a European continent face now and will face in the future. As you mentioned there, it's important to maintain strong relationships with Britain's allies at this time, particularly when there is a war on the continent of Europe that's ongoing and concerns about potential other countries being drawn into a direct conflict. Do you fear that the Conservative Party's treatment of Article 16, that obligations under the Brexit deal, really damage then and undermine the UK status on the world stage? And what long-term ramifications do you fear that could have for people simply no longer seeing Britain as a trustworthy nation to do business with? Because it's important to maintain trust at, at the very lowest level if countries are going to want to work with, especially when we're supposed to be negotiating trade deals with every country in the world now. I think that is absolutely correct. And one of the most damaging things that's happened to the United Kingdom, really, over the last few years since Boris Johnson has been in power, is that the respect which people have throughout the world for the United Kingdom has diminished substantially. And, you know, Britain has always had a, a well uh, thought of civil service. Its diplomatic corps has been exemplary. And Britain has always been the standard bearer for the need to abide by international law. And we see the British Prime Minister, you know, being cavalier about adhering to domestic law, but also being prepared to, to break international law as well. And the implications of that are horrific because it, it sends the message out that Britain is prepared to be fast and loose with 
with with law and our bond, our word cannot be trusted anymore. And that is enormously damaging for our reputation and our long-term relationships. And I think it is it is that which I I'm sure an incoming Labour government would want to put right immediately. And uh, that abiding by the rule of law and ensuring that the world acknowledges Britain as, a, as a, a country which can be trusted is of enormous importance. And, uh, you know, it, it, is, it is important, as you're hinting at, really, that if Britain is going to exercise real force and influence throughout the world, then we have to have that respect and we have to rely not just on our military strength, but on our diplomatic persuasion, uh, but also our soft power as well. And one of the things which has been enormously damaging again over the last few years is, is the way that Britain's soft power in the world has been undermined. The British Council, for example, is a shadow of its former self. The BBC World Service has been uh, kept back. And, you know, generally speaking, I think there hasn't been a realization just how important bodies like that really are in ensuring that Britain's influence is enhanced and continued throughout the world, but also importantly, that the values which underpin Britain as a nation state are also being eroded and people are not given the opportunity really to, to realise you know, what a fantastic country Britain can be and how it can be a model for others to follow. When we look at the other major foreign policy issue that's currently on the agenda, it's obviously the conflict in Ukraine and that's had a direct impact on the UK cited as one of the causes of the cost of living crisis with the government claiming that they couldn't have stopped this inflationary spiral and pressure because it was inevitable consequence of the massive global disruption that we've seen. Do you think that blaming the situation on the conflict in Ukraine is fair, or do you think it's shifting the blame? Well, clearly, uh, President Putin hopes that, you know, by uh, turning off uh, the taps and, you know, stimulating economic difficulty, in the countries who are rightly supporting Ukraine will turn the populations against uh, the Ukrainian struggle for, for self-determination. And I think we should be aware of that. And that is something which the, the government, uh, I would argue, has not been putting across firmly over the last couple of weeks. But these are not just an automatic consequence uh, of, a, of a conflict. They are you know, a deliberate aspect of Putin's approach. And that's why I think it's important that we recognize that what ha is happening Ukraine, in Ukraine is, is not simply a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. You know, I think Putin has, has clearly set a marker down that he, he intends to recreate uh, the, the Soviet Union empire, for what of a better phrase. And uh, if he's allowed to get away with uh, that kind of aggression in Ukraine, we are likely to see it elsewhere as well. And that's why I think the, the stand which the West collectively is making in support of Ukraine is so extremely important. But I think it's also imperative that the government stands by the British people in recognizing that Putin is attempting to, uh, 
to push them on the front line by making them suffer economically. It is imperative that the government comes forward with realistic policies to really support the British people in this difficult situation we find ourselves in. And as we've seen, the Conservative Party has been engulfed by its leadership contest, and yet we've seen the most ridiculous, uh, pious statements coming from uh, both Truss and, and Sunak over the last few weeks, and very little real support for the people of this country who are facing very real challenges over the next few months. And I think, you know, that is appalling. It is morally wrong, but just shows out of, out of touch with reality. The Conservative Party and its aspiring leaders really are. And I think that is the issue which we have to address, is that A, we recognise what Putin is trying to do, and B, stand full square behind the British people and make sure the resources of our nation are there adequately deployed in making sure that the people of this country do not suffer through this energy crisis and its implications. As people in this country begin to feel a greater and greater squeeze, there's going to become pressure on the government to stop funneling money towards supporting Ukraine and the struggle that they're experiencing and putting that money towards supporting British people. For Ukraine to be able to win, it needs that Western alliance to stand fully supporting Ukraine and not breaking. If there's a crack in that Western alliance, any one country, it could all fall apart there. How do governments prevent that alliance falling apart as they face greater and greater pressure to reduce their support for Ukraine in favour of their support for their own citizens? I think it's important to, to, to emphasize to people that the, um, the struggle against Russia in Ukraine is not just important and vital for the Ukrainian people, but it's important for all Europeans, and that includes British people as well. And, uh, you know, I'm a historian by, by background, and I really think it's important to, to learn the lessons of the past. And, uh, you know, most people are aware that the Second World War erupted and developed as it did because people, or certainly leaders of the West and of Britain in particular, were not prepared to, to stand up against Hitler. They pursued a policy of appeasement. That is an, an extreme parallel. But nevertheless, unless bullies and thugs and dictators like Putin are not firmly stood up to, then they, they see, we see their uh, aggrandizement and aggression get worse. And that is the lesson of history. And I think that, uh, you know, it's important to recognize that you know, the, the countries which are right next to Russia feel under tremendous threat at the moment, uh, but also, you know, countries further uh, to the West, you know, have got cause to be concerned about Russians' actions as well, too. And let's not forget that, um, you know, during the early part of the conflict, you know, what the West response would be was watched very, very carefully by China, not least, and a very, a very real concern. But if the Russians were able to get away with uh, their invasion of uh, Ukraine, 
And then there's a possibility that China might think that they could get away with their invasion of, of Taiwan. So it is important that the West made that important stance, which it did, and that must be continued. And we must send out a clear message, you know, but we cannot live in a world in which, you know, a war and aggression and ignoring the rule of law are the order of the day. You know, our British values, you know, demand really that we show solidarity with Ukraine, but also we point out consistently time and time again to the British people. But it's in our collective best interests to stand firm in support of what is right and fair and democratic. And I say that, that that's that's the important message which is essential to get across to the British people. And uh, you know, I mean, one of the great concerns I have is that the summer has been inevitably spent watching the, the farce of the, the Conservative Party election rather than addressing the real concerns which people have in this country about their cost of living, uh, but also, you know, the, the need to reassure people that we have a policies in place and the alliance and perspective to make sure that their futures are safe. You talked about how you're a historian looking domestically at, we're now in a situation where there's a lot of talk about going back to the 1970s with the chaos that the UK is finding itself economically within. And one of the policies that's emerged is a return to renationalizing the energy companies, potentially a nationalization of further industries. Even within the Conservative Party, we saw a recent poll that found 53% of people who voted for the Conservative Party in 2019 support the renationalization mm. of the energy companies. How viable do you think that policy is now? And how quickly do you think it could come about? If Well, I think the important thing I, I would begin by stressing is that the situation we find ourselves in now is, is very different to the situation we found ourselves in the 1970s and 1980s. I think during the 70s and 80s, the, the main ideological thrust in the country was around Thatcherism and the need to create a, a freer market. And I think people have, have lived through the, the consequences of that. And I think now the public board is, is very, very different. And I think that people recognize that, yes, private enterprise is important, but it's also important that we have a, a proactive state and a state which can provide the framework for the security and well-being of its, of its citizens. And I think that's why the, the debate about public ownership is an important debate to have. But I also think it's important that we be uh, realistic and pragmatic in, in how we approach these issues. Because although I don't think nationalization should be taken off the agenda, it should be there. But nevertheless, we should recognize that there's a high cost for any kind of public ownership. And uh, I think that it's, it's very important to, you know, to come to a decision about how money is best spent is it best spent ensuring that uh, people's standard of living is maintained or is it best spent on, on subsidizing or not paying shareholders, you know, so that the state can take over the industries uh, and the public ownership? 
And, uh, you know, I, I would prefer really the emphasis to be placed on what is in, in people's short-term benefit rather than what is uh, ideologically uh, necessary. But I think it's a debate we, we need to have. And I think the role of the state has to be far more proactive than it's been under the Conservatives. And uh, I'm glad public opinion is, is moving in that direction. Uh, the final point I make is, uh, I think it's important to recognize at the same time as all this is taking place, that, you know, the, we are we're likely to see list trust emerging as a, as a very right-wing, uh, ideologically inspired politician. Although her policies at the moment are extremely vague, it has to be said, but I think the, the odds are that she will be inclined to try and carry forward Boris Johnson's uh, class right-wing agenda, for one or a better phrase. And I think that the Labour Party's big challenge as we approach the election is not just to come forward with, with realistic policies which address people's concerns, but also to come forward with a, a strong vision of what a, a better, fairer, more decent, more caring Britain could be like. And I think that's going to be the, the big challenge for, for Labour over the next few months. It's not so much whether or not we've got detailed policies on this, that and the other. There's, there's, there's plenty of time once you won an election to develop those policies. What is important is that the vision is set out clearly and the moral basis for that vision is also articulated well. And that's a real challenge which Labour does face over the next few months. We need to show we are better people than the Conservative Party. That point about developing policy potentially ties into to a question that I have, which was when Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party, he pledged common ownership of rail, mail, energy and water companies. But that doesn't seem to be the current plan of the Labour Party. As a member of that party, do you know why your fellow MPs, have they expressed why they're not seeking to take that approach then? Well, I, I can only speak personally. And uh, I think if we were starting with a, a blank sheet of paper, yes, they, we would maintain public ownership in a number of uh, the key areas which, which you mentioned. But the reality is that we're, we're not in that position or likely to be in that position. And I think we have to recognise, first of all, the tremendous strains that have been put on the country's finances regarding the, uh, the COVID pandemic, and recognise that you know people at the end of the day, while they might accept the abstract case for greater public ownership, what they're concerned about desperately is, that, is whether or not their, their families are going to be destitute and whether they can make ends meet. And I think it's exactly the same issue which a future Labour government will have to face as well. And I think that, uh, of course, I mean, uh, but by no means public ownership should be taken off the agenda. It should be there. But also, our priority has got to be the immediate well-being of the, the people whose trust we are, we are trying to win. And uh, it, is, it is that pragmatism you know, which is absolutely central, I think, to, to Labour's appeal to the country. I mean, one of the things that we, we are seeing is that, as I mentioned, we have a Conservative Party which is more right-wing, more 
ide ideologically dogmatic than it has ever been. One nation conservatism is confined, you know, to, to a, uh, the back streets. And what is to afford is an ideological Thatcherite right-wing agenda. And I think what the British people want is basic common sense. And I think the Labour Party, with high morals, is also inspired by good, honest pragmatism. What we'll do is what works and what is necessary. And it is, it is those guiding principles, I think, which should be at the top of Labour's agenda as we run into the general election campaign. Another area that Labour has found itself in the spotlight of recently, and maybe it's one that you might have personal connection to, because I know that your family growing up in Wales were involved in the mining industry, the miners' strikes. We're now seeing a new wave of striking industries, people again fighting for fair pay, fair conditions. And there's been a conversation within the Labour Party, this debate about how it manages its relationship with the unions, its support for workers during this period. And that's seen a bit of confusion, some might say, over where Keir Starmer stands on that. He's been attacked by the General Secretary of Unite, the union, who told him to get a spine over the issue. There's been a, a lot of criticism for, for not taking that stand, particularly over picket lines, for example, not allowing front benchers to join picket lines. Do you think that's right for Labour to not stand on picket line shoulder to shoulder with workers? I, I think it's important to remember two things. Uh, firstly, the, the Labour Party was in part founded by the, the trade unions. We have always been throughout our history and today. The people who seek to give uh, leadership to and work with uh, working people and uh, the organisations that working people organised through are, of course, the trade unions. And I think that, uh, you know, Keir Starmer has said he's got enormous sympathy with the, the trade unions who are basically fighting to defend their standard members, members' standard of living. And I think that is, is right, and that's what trade unions were established to do. And I think that uh, that is the view of everyone inside the Labour Party. I think how you, you manifest your, your support is is the crucial thing, however. And uh, I myself have, have been on picket lines. Uh, I don't like the phrase picket lines, to be perfectly honest, because they are gestures of support these days. We are showing that we stand over workers in a very, very physical way. It's not a case of preventing people doing this or doing that. So, I'm, uh, And I will continue to do that as, as long as I, I, I believe the, the strikes which are taking place are, are justified. And I think all the ones which are taking place at the moment are justified. But I think at the same time, it's important to recognise that Keir Starmer, as leader of the Labour Party, aspires to be Prime Minister of the country as a whole. And uh, with the exception of, of Jeremy Corbyn, every single Labour leader, in my memory, and uh, in my understanding of history, has taken the view very similar to what Keir Starmer has taken at the moment. And what he will seek to do is become Prime Minister and do his utmost to bring people together to make sure that industrial disputes are not necessary. And, and that is the role of a Prime Minister. It is not the role of someone aspiring to be Prime Minister to be going out and joining demonstrations. 
it's up to party members if they want to do that. It's up to backbench MPs like myself if we want to do so. Uh, it's up to Keir Starmer and the government in waiting to adopt a slightly different approach to make sure that they're seen to be acting in the interest of a country as a whole and bringing people together to make sure that these industrial disputes are brought to an end. How does Labour bridge the divide that seems to have emerged within it? Because it's always been a factional party. It's always had very broad church, different wings of it. And to get into government, Labour's going to have to get over it fighting with itself and go and fight the Tories. How does it bridge that divide, do you think, from your experience? Well, I think the Labour Party, as you say, has always been a, a broad church. We've always had a wide variety of different views of what constitutes democratic socialism. And that is really healthy. And uh, I'm reminded of what Nye Bevan said about the last thing we want to see, you know, is, is the unity of a graveyard. And, and yeah, you know, it's important that everybody has their, their two penneth worth, they have plenty of discussion, plenty of debate. But then when it comes to uniting around a policy and preparing for an election, we all we all pull together. And I, I don't see any problem with that. And one of the great strengths, I think, of, of Keir Starmer is that. While many people anticipate that the Labour Party would be ripping itself apart now with different factions, that hasn't really happened. And I think the Labour Party uh, you know, has got a new national executive committee, and uh, I think the, the election results of that will be positive in a few hours' time. And uh, I think there's a desire within the party rank and file uh, to recognise that the most important thing for us is to become the party of government. That's why the Labour Party exists, is to win elections. Not for its own sake, because that is the only way in a democratic system that we can help ordinary people. And that is our goal and that is our single objective. And I think as we move closer to the election, although people might have reservations about that policy or whatever, nevertheless, they recognise at the end of the day, a Labour government led by Keir Starmer will be far, far better than the Conservative government, which will have led by Listress. And is that, you know, focus being provided by elections, which will provide the Labour Party with the essential gel to keep it together and project itself to the people of this country as a, as a viable government in waiting which offers a far better future to them than anything the Conservatives can offer. If you could enact one policy right now to tackle the challenges facing the UK or the challenges you've seen over your years in politics, what would it be and why? I mean, that's a very, very difficult question to answer. <laughs> I, I can think of, of, of lots of policies. But I think... Uh, very, very different to everything we've spoken about so far. I mean, I, I would like to see a fundamental change to the Dangerous Dogs Act. And you may, might think that's a strange thing to say. But, but you know, I, I've been very moved over the last few months over the death of a 10-year-old constituent in my constituency by uh, a dangerous dog. And uh, that's brought home to me how many incidents of dangerous dog violence there, there, uh, there are in our society and how the, the legislation which exists at the moment is woefully 
inadequate. And I actually believe that we need to move away from having uh, a short list of dangerous dogs, but I have a fundamentally different approach, which puts the onus really on uh, dog training and ensuring that local authorities, for example, have a much, much bigger role in ensuring that dangerous dogs do not develop because uh, you know, dangerous dogs don't just happen. It's because owners don't train them or train them incorrectly, but we have dangerous dogs in place. And I believe there could be a cross-party consensus in favor of a new approach, which uh, on the one hand prevents uh, innocent dogs being placed on a dangerous dogs list, but at the same time provides much more protection for members of the public from dangerous dogs. And that is a big issue really, which we need to have a national discussion on and hopefully create a political consensus how the dangerous dogs issue is tackled on a cross-party basis. Wayne David, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for me doing.